Thank you, Craig. How's everyone doing? Uh, the rumors are true. Today is my birthday. And I think that's a really beautiful thing to preach here. A birthday is a day of celebrating life, growth, hopefully maturity. And I, fullness is a huge part of that for me. The, the ways that I've grown in the past four years since going here, the ways that I've grown more in the image of Christ, my spiritual maturity, the large part to the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit through the body here. The same can be said of my marriage, like I said earlier, or a second ago. Uh, Maddie and I celebrate two years of marriage tomorrow. Yes, we got married the day after my birthday. Yes, it was because the venue only had that date. No, I'm not tired of it. Um, but I've seen Maddie grow, and our marriage has been established in a church like this. Um, I say it every time I get up here, it is an honor, but I think it's more and more true every time. So thank you. Bart mentioned I go to Beeson Divinity School. Back in high school, there was a moment where my church, which was a rather large church, had a, a great day of service. You sign up, you go, and you serve. And I ended up signing up for uh, a mission. I don't remember where we went, but I went with my youth group. Uh, we signed up. I went. I went to go see my youth pastor, all my friends that day. We appeared. I think it was a homeless shelter. And I realized I signed up with the wrong church group. It was a different youth pastor than I was expecting. There were different youth. And me and my homeschooled 11th grade self was standing in the corner awkward the whole time. But something happened. I was watching their youth pastor, I don't know, go around doing youth pastor things, whatever that is. And I had the thought, I could do that. Or I want to do that. And I didn't have any sense of the internal voice of the Holy Spirit or what exactly was going on. All I knew is that's not a thought I've ever had before. That's a thought that's scary, and I'm not sure I want to have that thought. But I kept praying about it. I talked to my youth pastor, the right one, and other pastors in the church. And over time, just there was confirmation and affirmation that in some form or fashion, I'm still not sure. If you are, please tell me. I'm called to ministry. Now, what that looks like for vocation, what that looks like, I don't know, but I'm called to ministry, and I carried that through the rest of high school, through my undergrad, and into Beeson. And the last few years of Beeson, I've just become more and more convinced that we're all called to ministry. So what one of my professors would call every member ministry, every member of the body of Christ, in some form or fashion, regardless of vocation, is called to do ministry. Another way to say this, as Martin Luther would say, is that it's the priesthood of all believers. If you flip up into the Old Testament, you'll see that the priest, he's, he's the mediator between God and man. He represents God to the people and the people to God. So if you were to want to go, I don't know, make a sacrifice, go to the temple to worship, you, you needed a priest. Well, in Hebrews, it teaches us Jesus is our high priest, amen? And we have a direct access, a direct line to God. And because of that, we've also become priests, representing God to the people of the world. And that's our call as believers. That's our call within the church. We are all, in some way, called to ministry. And that's what we're talking about here with this series on spiritual gifts. But it is important to ask, how does this ministry work out? How is the church built up and built out? How does the kingdom of God advance through us as the church? Maddie and I recently interned for two weeks in London, 
as a part of my Beeson degree. And we spent two weeks working with a church there, a few other Beeson students, and the church was a network of other churches. So we were involved with a lot of people, and in being involved with a lot of people, you see a lot of different philosophies about how ministry should be done, right? And so some of the people we were with, I'm not going to tell you who they were, but they would kind of more or less operated under the functional assumption that ministry is done through systems. You know, there are this many people in this London area that are unreached, and this degree of people we need to talk to in order for this percentage of Christians to, or people to hear the gospel, and maybe this percentage of people will be Christians, and then we'll be reached in London. And I don't want to belittle that. That is helpful to a degree. But it's also not the, the way that you flip up into the book of Acts that the, the Holy Spirit moves through the church and advances the kingdom of heaven, right? And the other side of the spectrum was, you know, ministry is done through philosophy. If we think the right things, if we figure out and have all the answers, I mean, we might not even need to go to other people. They'll just come to us. And that's how ministry advances. And there's a degree where that's true. We need to have right thoughts. We don't want to be heretics. But at the same time, flip open to the book of Acts and something else is going on. Ministry is happening another way. Every member ministry is happening through the gifts of the Spirit. That's what we've been doing this series on up until now. So what are spiritual gifts? I don't want to preach every sermon that's been preached before this, but I want to highlight some things. Uh, We have a young married group here at Fullness. Where are my young married people at? They're all over here. Um, And we ask the question a lot. Well, a little. If, If the Holy Spirit is working within us. I mean, think about this. Think about this. The God of the universe, the third member of the Trinity. Think of the universe and the galaxies. I mean, the sun isn't even the biggest star in the Milky Way. Think of how big and vast and intelligent that design is needed. You can think all the way down to ants and bugs and how they work and the intricacies there. And somewhere, that designer has decided to make a home in us. So if if, if we have a marriage and it's a Christian marriage, and the Holy Spirit's working in that marriage, shouldn't it look significantly different from the marriages in the world? I think we can ask the same question about spiritual gifts. If, if the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, first off, isn't that amazing? He's somehow in your body and you're not exploding. <laughs> and he gives you a gift, a gift of giving, of leadership or mercy that we're talking about today. Shouldn't that be significantly different from the giving or the leadership or the mercy that the world shows? And so how does that work out? What does that mean? And we're very comfortable talking about giving leadership and mercy. Let's be honest. How many of us took a little bit of a sigh of relief of, okay, today's not the tongues day. My, my in-laws were here last week, and it was fantastic. But whenever you bring somebody to your church for the first time, and they're sitting in the pew, and you're going through a series on spiritual gifts, you're kind of wondering, oh, what are we talking about today? Well, thankfully, I got giving leadership and mercy, because my family is here today. (laughs) Um, But here's my point. I have a point. I think if we really understood giving, or leadership, or mercy, as the Bible talks about them, we might start to squirm with our in-laws in the seats next to us. We might start to wonder, wow, is he really saying that? Sorry, Mom and Dad, I promise this will be normal. (laughs) 
maybe. But I want us to see this morning how big God is, how beautiful God is, and why it's important that these gifts look different from the world around us. Because if you look around, we live in a world that's very skeptical. If you look within, we live in a world that's pretty cynical. We have it all figured out. We have our little boxes that we put things in. And, 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 and we think we know the truth. So when someone else approaches us saying, I have this system that's going to work, or I have this philosophy that's going to work, we put our guards up immediately, right? We, this, is, this isn't something we're comfortable with. This isn't something that we're used to. And something about the spiritual gifts that I want to look at today is how they just break through the skepticism of the world to open us up to the goodness of God, to the mercy of God, to the beauty of God, and why we need him for them. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look through the life of Barnabas. Barnabas was a, a, a disciple in the book of Acts. He, let's see. Oh, no, we're not going to do that yet. I'm preaching specifically, we're working through Romans 12, 12 through 6, and I did want to read that as a whole, just so we're on the same page of what we're looking at. Because we all have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is to give, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Giving, leadership, mercy. That's what we're going to look at today through the life of Barnabas. Barnabas was a disciple in the New Testament church. If you've read the book of Acts or you're familiar with the book of Acts, he's a common character that just keeps coming up. And the first time on the scene is in Acts 4. It says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that were there, this is talking about the early church, were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned the land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to every, anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned. He brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Isn't that incredible? I mean, in an agrarian culture, that was seen as huge. But even today, at most, he's selling his home. We don't quite know. At least he's selling or liquefying a major real estate investment and bringing it and giving it all away. That's incredible. That's different from the world around us and how we give, right? We see giving in the world. We celebrate giving in the world around us, but it typically falls under one of two categories. Number one, it's within our comfort zone. We like to give insofar as we can. We like to give what's easy for us. So there's, there's a story of this in Mark 12. Jesus was sitting down opposite the place where the offerings were put. And he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more in the treasury than all others. 
They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put everything, all she had to live on. This is radical. This is out of her comfort zone. This is costly to her. So one, we like to give so far as it's in our comfort zone. Number two, we like to give so far as we get something out of it, right? Maybe we'll feel good if we give this. Maybe we'll get a seat at the table if we give this. Maybe other people will look to us. Maybe, you know, you give your spouse a massage table knowing that I'm going to get a massage later. It does. But that's, but that's part of the motivation of our giving. 1 Corinthians 9-7, each of you, this isn't talking about people with a gift of giving, but each of you, every member, should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This word cheerful is where it comes from the word that we also get hilarious. This is a giving freely. This is a giving extravagantly. This is a giving where you don't care about your comfort zone. It's not just sticking in it. It's not just stepping out of it. It's recklessly abandoning it to an extent. It's that kind of giving that we're called to. And at the same time, for those gifted in giving, if it is, who, if it is giving, then give generously. Pastor Bart hit on this a couple weeks ago in another sermon, but this word generously basically means open-heartedness or an undivided heart. It's giving no strings attached. It's giving without regard for your comfort zone, but also without caring what you're going to get in return. I don't need a seat at the table. I don't need to get something out of this. I was on the receiving end of a pretty extravagant gift recently. Um, I'm going to try and tell this story, but honestly, every time I try and tell it, I'm at a loss for words. Uh, my boss approached the president of the company that I'm a part-time employee for, approached the other executives of the company and said, we need to give Reed a car. And they gave me this. And afterwards, I kept pressing. I'm like, why, why are you doing this? Why would you give me this? This isn't, you know... It doesn't make sense. I'm a part-time employee. I'm not your most profitable employee. Probably I'm your poorest employee, but, you know, <laughs> why? And, and he said, we saw a need and we wanted to fill it. And I said, I don't buy it. Why? <laughs> and he told me a little bit of a story, but in summary, and he ended it with just saying this. God told me to. What he didn't know was at the beginning of this year in January, I started to pray that God would root up cynicism in my heart. And as he was doing that, as I kept praying that, and if you've ever prayed anything like that before, you know sin starts to kind of bubble to the top. You start to notice things you've never noticed before. And one of the things that I was noticing was massive amounts of car envy. I would be driving my old Ford Focus with tape holding up the bottom of it. The windows don't roll down. The air conditioner doesn't really work. And I'd pull up to a red light, and I would look next to me, and it would be a nice something like this. And in my heart, I would say, ah, I want that. So I went to my wife, and I was like, is it bad to want a good thing? What's going on here? And we, started, we realized I was believing a lie. It was the lie that what will really make me happy in life is something like this. Actually, it was this. It was a Toyota Tacoma. 
That's what we were telling each other. I even went to my friends, and I said, I need y'all to pray for me. Because you know how we'll say, you have a God-sized hole in your heart. I told them, I have a Toyota Tacoma-sized hole in my heart, and I really need you to pray for this. I don't want to believe a lie that this is what's going to make me happy. And they did. One of my friends even prayed, I thought it was jokingly, that God would give me a Toyota Tacoma. I guess God didn't know she was joking. Thanks, Cameron. But, um, but when this happened, it, I mean, this is the thing that we had been praying about that God would remove. I was talking to Dr. Hawkins, Melissa, about this quite, after, quite soon after it happened, and she said, I think God just wanted to show you that he could. That the, the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, if he wanted to, he could. Do you see what kind of skepticism or cynicism that Jesus obliterates? I went to, or actually after that whole conversation with my boss for sitting on the tailgate, and he looks at me and he says, I think I'm starting to learn what it really means, that it's better to give than to receive. And if you're familiar with that saying, Jesus said it, but it's not recorded in any of the Gospels. It's actually in the book of Acts that, he's, that it's recorded that he said it. And it's Paul quoting Jesus after he's talking about how he's given away his life to a church. It's not just, this is, this is him taking a phrase of Jesus and putting on flesh with it. This is incarnate. This is him saying, I know what it's like. It's truly better to give to receive. He's not just talking about monetary giving either. He's talking about everything he has because at the end of the day, everything we have belongs to God. Even when we tithe our you know, 10% or whatever, we're just saying this is a, a representation of everything else I own. And that radically changes the way we give and it breaks open the skepticism and cynicism of the world. Moving on to Barnabas. They, being Paul and Barnabas, preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening their disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed leaders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Here we see biblical leadership put on display. And I talked earlier, earlier about every member ministry, right? We're all called to ministry in some degree. But at the same time, we see even here after that, there are specific people put in leadership positions, appointed to be leaders, given the gift of leadership. We have that in our church with Gabe and Scott and uh, what's the other guy's name? I'm sorry, Pastor Bart forgot my name a few weeks ago when I was gone, so. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> elders, trustees, we have leaders in the church, and leaders are a good thing. But how often are we skeptical of leadership, at least in the world? I mean... I'm not even going to name leaders. We're skeptical. In our country, in our workplace, maybe even in our church. Who would let that intern preach? <laughs> but that boss mentality, what we're used to in the world, is a sense of hoarding and manipulating 
and poor stewardship of power or authority or leadership. It's bad leadership. And there's a whole countercultural biblical way of leading that can be summed up in one word, servanthood. Matthew 20, Jesus is talking, whoever wants to become great, you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did, not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This is servant leadership. This is putting your life down for the people you lead. And I just want to ask you, especially for those of you that have leadership positions, what does your life look like if you serve those you lead? Maybe it's in your household with your children. Maybe it's at work. You have employees that follow you. Maybe it's here in the church. What kind of skepticism does that just break open when the leader comes to serve and care about those he or she leads? But there's more. If it is to lead, do it diligently. To lead with zeal in other translations. To go before the people. Has anyone here read Pilgrim's Progress? So few. Has anyone ever read the second book to Pilgrim's Progress? No one. Great. Pilgrim's Progress is the journey of a man called Christian. And it's very allegorical, and it's the story of Christian on his Christian life, moving from the city of destruction to the celestial city, heaven. And along the way, he, he travels and he goes through the valley of the shadow of doubt where he faces demons and giants, and you never know if he's going to make it through this valley of the shadow of doubt because the pages are so long and the language is so old, and you're thinking, is he ever going to make it through? Also, because there's death and despair at his reach. And he gets to the end of his journey, and as the reader, you're wishing there was a little bit more. Something's a little off. You see, Christian went on the journey by himself. He had other people around him. He had other people helping him. But from beginning to end, there's only one person that takes the journey, and it's Christian. And so Bunyan, John Bunyan, the author, the Puritan author of this story, decided to write a part two. This part two is about Christiana, Christian's wife, and their kids, and another remnant collective that moves from the city of despair or destruction to the celestial city. And this time they even have a guide, Mr. Greatheart. He's their leader. He's done it before, and at the end, when they get to the celestial city, he goes back to do it again. He leads them. He takes them. And things like the, the shadow, sh valley of the shadow of doubt. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Even there, when it seems like Christian's going to die, reading the second book, you feel a lot safer. Because they're not alone. They have a guide. Before they go and face a giant or face whatever, Mr. Greatheart takes them aside and says, hey, here's what's ahead. And when they get there, he fights on their behalf. And you just feel a lot lighter reading the book because they're doing it in community and they're doing it with a leader who serves them, who cares about them, who's diligent in his leadership. That's the biblical leadership that we're talking about here in Romans 12. Back to Barnabas. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. This is Paul. Paul, as you know, was a persecutor of the Jews, killed Jews, and had this radical Damascus Road experience where he met Jesus face to face and decided to follow him. 
He preached him in Damascus, and then he came to Jerusalem. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, and he brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, has seen the Lord, and that the Lord has spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. When everyone else condemned Paul or backed away from Paul or was scared of Paul, Barnabas wasn't afraid of the mess. He stepped in and he brought him to the apostles. This isn't the last time Barnabas is going to do something like this. Later, him and Paul start going on all these missionary journeys and they go with Barnabas's cousin, John Mark. And for some reason, John Mark decides to leave. We don't really know why. We just know Paul didn't love it. So later in Acts, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit all the believers in the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and they had not, and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. It's funny that Barnabas has shown Paul that kind of mercy, and, and now even he's having to show John Mark that kind of mercy. This is a sharp divide between Paul and Barnabas. We don't like to see stuff like this in Scripture. If later you were to go read Colossians, Colossians 4, or the end of Philemon, you would see that John Mark, something changed. And on this journey, he became very just alive in the gospel because someone showed him mercy. And Paul even goes on to say, I'm thankful for John Mark. See how that kind of mercy can open us up? But there's more. Because if your gift is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. There's that word again. Remember, God loves a cheerful giver. It's the word that we get hilarious from. It's this word that I'm not worried about stepping out of my comfort zone. I'm just not worried about my comfort zone at all. That kind of mercy is the mercy we're called to show. And um, this isn't just forgiveness or compassion. It is. It is those things. But it's also doing the thing. It's also incarnate, again. It's putting on flesh. It's, it's walking out and doing deeds of mercy or compassion. It's bringing a meal to someone who needs it. It's letting someone borrow your car for a while. It's letting someone who needs a place to stay for a little bit stay with you. And let me even say, this is where we squirm a little bit. It's letting your in-laws stay with you. I love my in-laws. But that's the kind of mercy that we're being called to show. Now, it is important for boundaries, right? We don't, I recognize if your gift set is geared towards mercy, you're also probably getting run over some of the time. And it's important that we have boundaries set in place for that not to happen. But what's the purpose of those boundaries? It's so that we have the ability to show mercy and do it again. Don't build boundaries so high that it blocks you from walking in the gifts that God has given you. Often, and this applies to all the gifts, our greatest strengths, the enemy is going to take that and lie to you and tell you that's your weakness. But walk in it. Healthily. One of the greatest examples of mercy 
ever is captured in Rembrandt's painting of the woman taken in adultery. This woman was taken. We don't know if she was in the act, but probably. Rembrandt was kind enough to put clothes on her. She was taken and thrown before Jesus in the temple. And people all around her, accusing her, pointing fingers at her, calling Jesus to do what is just according to the law and the prophets, to stone her. And Jesus bends down and starts writing in the sand or in the dirt. We don't know what he was writing. Some scholars speculate, you know, maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments so everyone standing around would see where they've fallen short. We don't know. We do not know what he was writing. But something that was worth his time. And they started to question him more, like, are you paying attention? What are... This woman's caught in adultery. We need to stone her. And he says, okay. But the one to cast the first stone, let him be the one without sin. And then he just goes back to writing in the dirt. One by one, they drop their stones. You think maybe when they dropped it, she thought they were throwing them when she heard them hit the ground. But they dropped their stones and they walked away. And Jesus looked up and he looked at her and he said, where, where are your accusers? Do they not condemn you? And she says, no. He says, neither do I condemn you. There, there's something we need to see about spiritual gifts. Jesus, I use him for the example of mercy. Honestly, that's a little bit of a cheat because Jesus is the perfect example for all the gifts. Giving, leadership, and mercy or whatever else, prophecy. But if you want to walk in these gifts, you're going to have to know God as a giver. And let me push you on this. Do you know him as a giver? Not just a giver who gives good gifts, but a giver who gives hilariously, cheerfully, with no strings attached. Do you see the gifts that God has given you as gifts with no alternative motives? How often do we look at them and say, he's given me this, but I have to do this with it. It's good to do, to use them for the kingdom of God. But don't put the cart before the horse. The gifts he gives are no strings attached. Or as a leader, this will make us a little uncomfortable, but that's how gifts are. Servant leaderhood. How has God served you? How has he gone before you and led with diligence and zeal, knowing what the Father wants for you better than you know, and going ahead? Or mercy. I think this is where we get the most caught up. How often do you see God as merciful? Because sometimes I think we see him at best a father who just forgives us out of annoyance, at worst a judge who just has too many things on his plate to forgive, so he just forgives us. You see God as a God who gives mercy cheerfully, who lavishes it upon you time after time. It doesn't look different. But a God who gives mercy, who shows mercy cheerfully. Because only when we see him as these things are we actually going to be able to walk in the strength and the power and authority we've been given in these gifts. So that's what we're going to spend some time doing few minutes of what you could call reflective prayer, or you can just call it reflection of asking God. Maybe you can pick one of these. You can do all three if you want. What have you given to me? 
And have I viewed it rightly? Or how have you led me? And how am I following? Or how have you shown me mercy in life? I encourage you to see him doing it with a smile on his face every time. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. Reveal to us our heart. Search us and know us, God. Show us just let us step into the, the unforced rhythms of grace. Come before your throne and open our eyes to see you in ways we've never, ever seen you before.